0: Christ is better than Abraham, another Old Testament patriarch. And so he goes through the series of things that Christ is better. Uh, and the study before we got to chapter 8, I mean before we got to chapter 9, in chapter 8, uh, the Old Covenant, Christ, the New Covenant that Christ brings is better than the Old Covenant. And you would all, I assume, say, Amen. Amen? Aren't you glad you don't have to go to a tabernacle in the wilderness or a tabernacle outside of town and bring a goat or a lamb or whatever and wait for that process? I can't even imagine. I can't. Are you glad that your life isn't about keeping an Old Testament law? Now, if you're going to please God, there are some things you should do. Amen? But those things won't save you. Christ alone can save you. Uh, and so uh, I, it's much better. So the Old Covenant, the New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant. That's chapter eight. When we got to chapter nine, that's where I last time I taught. We're, now everybody back caught up. Everybody know the theme of Hebrews is. Oh, come on, people. Christ is better. Yeah. Christ is better. And by the way, it should be the theme of our whole life because uh, we, he's comparing the Old Testament system. He's talking about the Hebrews and the Jewish religion. Uh, when you talk about Christ is better, really in this life, there's nothing else you can compare, right? Christ is better. I, I love my family. I have a great relationship with my family, uh, at least as far as I know. <laughs> you know how that works, right? You never really know. Right, as far as I know, I have a great relationship with my family and love my family. Uh, probably the closest, the biggest thing in my life is family outside of church, outside of uh, what I do. Uh, it's family. But Christ is better than family. You may not believe this, but occasionally family will disappoint you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's funny. I saw about four people go, I think that was sarcasm, though. Uh, yeah, Christ is, better, Christ is better than financial security, Right? whatever you list. Uh, So as you get through the book of Hebrews, understand we're talking to a Jewish uh, audience. Uh, The writer of Hebrews, Paul, I think it is, is talking to a Jewish audience and he's trying to make them understand that Christ is better than anything you've ever understood. And if you just would put your faith and confidence in him and let go of the Old Testament, let go of the system of sacrifices, let go uh, of, uh, of the legalism of that whole concept and, Trust in Him and His grace by faith, you'd find life is better. So He goes through this whole thing. So when you get to chapter 9, He talks about the tabernacle. Now, uh, if you're looking at your notes, you you should have two sets of notes, right? Uh, You you brought them back from last week or have them. One should say the tabernacle, okay? Uh, Two tabernacles, part one. If you got that, then you're good because that's actually two lessons stapled together. If you're wondering why is that so thick, and most of you've been in my class long enough to know <laughs> we are not getting through that. But you can hang on to that. Then you should have another little lesson that says uh, tabernacle symbolism, right? So you have two different things. Now we're not going to go. Uh, we're not going to go back and do a study of the tabernacle through the book of Exodus. Uh, if you did that, that covers Exodus chapter 25 through uh, I think 40 or 41. Uh, that's a lot of study. Okay. Uh, we've gone through the Book of Exodus before, so we're not going to do that. But there is a little bit of an overview you have to know. If if you are going to understand, <coughs> if you're going to understand uh, Hebrews chapter nine, then you have to understand a little bit about the Old Testament tabernacle. So when take the lesson that says two tabernacles, okay? Grab that. Go to the second page. It's actually, page eighty-one in your notes, okay? And you'll notice right in the middle of that page, uh, I've divided the, the chapter nine. We, this is where we kind of left off last week, or whenever that was weeks ago. I've divided chapter 9 into three little sections. You see the first five verses there, I think it is, yeah, uh, verses 1 through 5, actually. The apostle gives a quick definition or a quick description of the tabernacle furniture. Most of you have a, some kind of acquaintance with that. How many of you have gone through a study about the tabernacle? Raise your hand. You've, somewhere in your life you've been in a study of the tabernacle. Most, most of you, if you've been saved more than 10 years, likely you've had some kind of study. We're not, we won't go into that this morning, but I'll give you a little overview, Okay. So we're talking about the tabernacle. So you, in those first five verses, he just gives you a quick description. In fact, look at that, those first five verses, chapter nine, verses one through five. I feel like I'm going 900 miles an hour because I haven't, I haven't preached in a while and I'm, I've got so much stuff that I want to tell you. It's, yeah, it gets crazy. There's another page I almost added to this today and I thought, they'll look at me like I'm insane. But you let me not preach for four or five weeks and it kind of builds up, sorry. Sorry. Okay, but chapter nine, verse one through five, then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. And what you'll find in this chapter, we've already talked about this, but chapter one talks about that worldly sanctuary. Uh, verse one talks about the worldly sanctuary. And then you can drop, jump over to verse 11 and it talks about a perfect tabernacle. So there's a worldly tabernacle, the physical worldly tabernacle in the wilderness. But there's also, that's molded after what, how God uh, operates in the heavenlies. And he's comparing, you're, you're worshiping you're putting more stock in the physical than you are in the eternal, the spiritual. You can't do that. And so then he reminds them real quickly in the next two verses. For there was a tabernacle made. That's the picture you see up there. There's a tabernacle made. The first where one was a candlestick, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. The first, again, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we we're talking about the first section of the holy place in the tabernacle. That little section, I'll show you that in a minute. The holy place. And then the second is the holy of holies. So when he refers to the first, he's talking about the holy place. When he refers to the second, he's talking about the holy of holies. I'll explain that in a little bit further. So after the second veil of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, or the holy of holies, which the golden which had the golden censer, the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had uh, manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant and over it the cherubim of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot speak particularly. Now it doesn't mean he doesn't know about it. It means... Kind of like I'm saying. In Hebrews, I'm just giving you an example. We're not going to go in detail. The word particular there, I might use the English word detail. We cannot go into detail in this letter. Can you imagine Paul writing a letter to the Hebrews and including all the explanation of the 10 or 15 chapters of the book of Exodus and explaining that in a letter? That would be a long letter. Okay, Hebrews is a pretty long letter anyway, amen? Amen. How many of you have gotten a letter from somebody that was as long as the book of Hebrews? Think about that for a second. Most of us, no. Unless it came from me and it might have been that long. But uh, So the first five verses, look at the middle of that page again, page 81. So the first five verses just give you a description of the tabernacle. Those second section, uh, verses 6 through 10, we'll, we'll go into, the, I don't want to do this next week, I'm going to kind of give you a little overview of the service in the holy of, of how the services went in the tabernacle. In other words, what it was that they had to come and do, okay? What, what was the brazen altar about? What was the labor about? What did the priest do in the holy place? What did the priest do once a year in the Holy of Holies? And you kind of have a little bit of understanding of that because if you don't have an understanding of that, like the Hebrews did, you didn't practice there, so you don't have that understanding. If you don't have that understanding, then you can't see how much better or you can't see the representation or the symbolism or the example that it was setting, so we'll have to cover a little bit of that. So here's what we're going to do this morning. The third section, by the way, is just uh, uh, what all that means, the spiritual reality behind it, that third section in chapter 3. So you've got three sections in chapter 3. We'll cover the first section. So I just put a picture up there, uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness. I didn't mean it to be so you could see it. I just wanted you to get the idea. Another one, uh, maybe a little nicer picture, uh, but you can't read all that. So I made it a little smaller again. Uh, I wish I had time to. This is if we were going in detail, I'd have this expanded in every detail. And boy, you talk about a Bible! It's a great Bible study. Uh, but here's a, here's something I want you to see. You say, "Why do you have a football field?" I, I just wanted to get you a general idea. Okay, uh, if I remember, it's 150 by 75. Is that right? What did I say here? Let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. I think that's right. Um, no, that's that's maybe too much. But the basic s- footprint of the tabernacle. Is about the size you see those blues that blue rectangle on a football field. That would give you, if you if you have any idea what that looked like, because when you see a picture like that or like that, you have it looks like it looks a lot bigger than that, right? Because the twelve tribes are encamped around about that, uh, so it's it's not it's not as big as you might think. It's it's actually in my mind that's very small, right? But it'd be interesting to see that. So uh, it was divided. Now you can't see all the detail here. It was divided. You have that big outside square where you see north, south, east, and west. Okay, that's the courtyard inside the fence. In the, you would call it the courtyard. Over where you see that the east, the E for the east. That's the that's the uh, entrance in the, the the entrance into the courtyard. And then you'll see that right in front of that, there's a little triangle. That's the brazen all. That's uh yeah, brazen altar. What did I put in here? Brazen altar altar of sacrifice. Uh, That's the brazen altar. Then you'd see the laver. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then when you get into the first veil, into the holy place, everybody still with me? Can you see where I'm going? I know that's really small, but I don't think I can. Can I do that in here? No, can't do that in here. Okay. so uh, you'll see the first veil. Then you'll have uh, the holy place. That's the first rectangle inside the large rectangle. If that makes sense, it made sense to me. And in there you're going to have the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and uh, the golden candlestick. Three things in there. Then you'll go through the second veil and then you'll see the mercy seat with the cherubim above, above it and with the things inside the mercy seat. Okay, That's just a basic idea, just so you get a general idea. So as you're going through that, as you're going through that, go, there we go. You got a little sheet that says symbolism of tabernacle. Everybody can read that, right? No, you can't read that. That's why I gave you a sheet, okay? So let me kind of give you an idea here. Uh, In Hebrews 9, the author of Hebrews starts his description of tabernacle and the holy place. When he says that, he's talking about, he says, he uses the phrase the first, right? That's the holy place. That's the first behind the first. That's what's behind the first veil and in front of the second veil. That make sense? You got that rectangle, the holy place. And then behind that, the Holy of Holies. Uh, He then moves his way into the Holy of Holies. That's verses three through five. And he refers to the second or the second section. The items in the courtyard aren't really mentioned in Hebrews. It's kind of interesting. Now, let's talk a little bit about the Holy Place. You can't really see there, but that's in blue lettering. Boy, it's a lot smaller. Actually, it's bigger up here. I'm looking at that little picture back there, and I'm thinking that's what you're looking at. Yours is bigger than mine. It's still too small for you to read closely, but you see the Holy Place, right? Right? in blue lettering there. That's what, what's in the holy place. Okay, so uh, just real quick, uh, one of the things in the holy place which would have to be there almost is a golden lampstand. Not just because of what it represents, but, but why? It'd be dark if you didn't have a lampstand in there. Okay, uh, some people call it menorah. Uh, a lot of things called the lampstand and the table of showbread, the altar of incense are all made of gold. And all these symbolize, uh, wait, let me, let me stop here. Before I get too far, let me say this, okay? When you start, um, uh, what's the word? When you start expanding on what everything meant in the tabernacle, you can go crazy. I mean, everything has some sort of symbolism, but not every piece of symbolism is explained in the scriptures. What I'm going to explain is what's only explained in the scriptures, The badger skins represent something. The color of the the canvases represent something. The posts represent something. Not all of those things are explained exactly what they represent. Do they represent something? I think so, yes. I heard a message one time, a pastor preached a message called Silver Sockets. I was like... When he preached that, I was like, what in the world? Silver sockets. Well, the posts fit down into silver sockets. And the reason they were silver sockets, he preached an entire message on silver sockets and what that represented and quoted no passage of scripture except for they should have silver sockets. Okay, I think you're going a little far when you take something and you say, well, the silver represents purity or the silver represents it and and therefore Christ represents this and therefore in our life, the silver sockets represent it. Okay, Slow down, right? So the things I want I'm going to try to give you are the things that I think I can prove from the text. Not me guessing what it might have also represented. Uh, the purple cloth I think I can prove from the text represents royalty. Can you prove for me the text why they use badger skin? Anybody know a verse in the New Testament that talks about badger skin? You do not. Some pastors do, though. OK, so I'm not going to go. I want you to understand. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to let my imagination run wild. Is that the best way to say it? I'm trying to be nice here. OK, so understand that. So the golden candlestick, the holy place, uh, bronze symbolizes sin, gold symbolizes speaks of deity. I think that's true. The holy place is alive with symbolism about Jesus. The gold lampstand speaks of one who revealed the father to us. Right. He is the, you do know he is the light, right? Uh, Jesus is our light giver and he is the light of the world. And I don't think there's any question that the golden candlestick represents Jesus as the light of the world, right? That's a pretty simple, easy, easily to get to, not complicated thing to say, okay? So what about the table of showbread? By the way, don't look at it. Look at me. Without even thinking, without even really any research, how could that possibly represent Jesus? Yeah, he's the bread of life. I mean, come on. You don't have to, I don't have to search and I don't have to work and say, well, bread is what makes us, you know, keeps us alive. It represents food. And Jesus is our spiritual food. All those things are true. But I know that it represents Jesus because Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. And everything in that tabernacle is going to represent something. So the table of showbread was, uh, here's another one where you get a little carried away. The table of showbread was made of a of wood and overlaid with gold. I like that, and I think that is a symbol. I think the fact that it's made of wood symbolizes what? What would you guess? It's humanity. Now it gets easy, right? Covered with gold represents you people are, you've had too much vacation. Your brains are not working. Okay, yeah, it symbolizes deity. So understand that. Uh, the wood speaks of Jesus' humanity, gold of his deity, Jesus the God-man, Jesus the living bread. Everybody, how many would say, Brother Morris, we don't think you're a genius, but we think you've got the golden candlestick and the showbread, you got it. How many would agree that's pretty much, yeah, you're not gonna give me nothing, are you? People are, Wake up, folks. I'm right on those two things. Amen? Okay. All right. So, no question there. I think that's fairly simple. You get up here and try it. You think it's easy, by the way. They're looking at me like, okay. So, uh, now there is a little problem here. How many of you, did I mention this the last time, the little problem in verse 3? Actually, it's verse 4. Uh, look, There's a little problem. Okay. So, we know, by the way, before I get to the problem, what are the three things that are obviously... You cannot escape proof excellent in the Old Testament. Go through the entire book of Exodus. What are the three things in the holy place? I mentioned the first two. There's a candlestick. There's a table of showbread. And what else? The golden censer of the altar of incense. You can call it different things. But it's, a, it's an altar of incense where incense is burned day and night uh, representing Prayer going up to... There you go. You guys are getting it. Uh, there's another representation there. We'll talk about that in a minute. But when you look at Hebrews, there's, here's your little problem. So look at verse two. For there was a tabernacle, the first, we're talking about the first section, correct? You know that because it continues that way. The first section, wherein was the candlestick, I showed you that, and the table of showbread, which is called the sanctuary, right? And then it says this. And after the second veil, what does that mean? Where would... What ha- what, after the second veil, you're in the Holy of Holies, right? There's no question about that. That's obvious. Oh, so, so after the second veil, it says, which is called the holiest of all. If you didn't believe me, believe him. Okay. The holiest of all, the holy of holies, which had the golden center, Is the altar of incense in the holy of holies? Go back through to the Book of Exodus. Is the whole yes or no? Is the altar of incense in the Holy of Holies? No. So what does that mean? He had, which had the golden censer in the Ark of Covenant. One commentator explained it very simply. He said it didn't say it was in it; it said it had it. In other words, when the priest went in and opened the veil, the incense followed him in. I don't know what the explanation is. I I I, quizzed, I I did this. This has been a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and I quizzed Pastor Monty. I said, "Hey, how do you explain this?" And he and he, he gave me some. I'm just going to use the word lame explanation. It was pitiful. And I'm like, "You don't come on." I said, "That's pitiful. That I can't stand up in front of my class and say that. They'll look at me like I'm stupid." And he said, uh, "And he he went back and he asked me verses. I said Hebrews nine three and four, explained those to me. He goes back." Uh, I think it was probably later that day, I don't know how many hours had passed. He came back and he had this book in his hand and he read me an explanation and it was just as lame as the explanation he gave me. Like my explanation had not in, okay? And I said, that doesn't explain it. And he goes, well, I don't teach the class so I'm not worried about it. And he walked out. I was like, dude. So I did this, I decided what I would do, you know, this happens all the time. Uh, how many of you read Old Testament or uh, Bible commentaries? How many of you read Bible? They're fun to read for the most part. How many of you have noticed this about Bible commentaries? If you've really read a lot of Bible commentaries, how many of you notice you get to a verse like this? Say, say it, Pat, what? They don't, it. they don't even talk about it. They don't even mention that there's a problem. They just go, and, then, and they just keep right on, like ignore it. Am I, am I right, Brother Bill? Do you find the same thing? Yeah. Jacob, you find the same thing? Yeah. You'll find... And when they don't have an explanation, they just go, I don't know. So my explanation of this is, I don't know. I really... I I mean, there's... Listen, there's some good... That that was the other paper I was going... There was one really good, long, detailed explanation, and I thought it was fairly good. Um, The smoke, the incense from uh, the altar went into, through the veil into... Yeah, and I get that. Why... You say, well, if Paul wrote this, wouldn't he know? Oh, absolutely he would know. A Pharisee of the Pharisees, there's no way he got this wrong. There's some message here, and I'm going to keep searching. I will, if, when I figure it out, I will tell you, but I don't, I, that's one, I'm just... God's trying to tell me something. I, I, I think I mentioned this to you. When I first got saved, my youth pastor always told us, Read the Bible until you, a new Christian, read the Bible until you find something you understand and meditate on that. Uh, I agree with that. I think as a young Christian, you, 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 you're not going to understand the deeper things of the Word of God. You know, you've got to have some background. And so I did that until I got out of Bible college. And then I made this resolution. I'm going to read the Bible until I find something I don't understand. And then I'm going to figure out why I don't understand that. And I've tried to do that most of my life. And there are places, there are several things. We're not going to list this morning, by the way, that I read. And I still today, after being saved 50 years, literally 50 years, I was saved in 73, 2003, going on 51 years of salvation. There's still a couple things that I just go. I know you're disappointed. You thought I knew it all. But don't be too disappointed. Pastor Monty doesn't know it either. It, made me feel, it actually made me feel kind of good that he, he bailed out on me. I was like, well, that's, I don't feel so stupid. It's a, it's a weird thing. But anyway, so let's go back. You'll notice that in that little section there, there's an odd thing. Altar of incense technically is in the holy place, not the holy of holies. In here, it says it had the altar of incense. Some people say that once a year in the day of atonement, when the priest would open the veil, that the smoke would enter in it. Some people say there's no scriptural support as far as I can say that they actually carried the altar of incense into representing prayer to God, you know, in fear of, really in fear of their life on that one day. You say, is that in the Bible? I can't find that in the scripture myself. I understand why they say that. I understand it would make this scripture make a lot of sense. But if I can't back it up scripturally, I'm not going to say that's what happened. You with me? Some of you look satisfied with my explanation anyway, like move on. Move on. Okay, so the golden altar of incense represents our access to God through prayer. No question about that. The incense was to be burned every morning and every evening. Uh, it also represents Jesus and the fact that Jesus is our mediator. There is one mediator between God and man, and who is that? That's Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad you don't? Uh, I know if you're Catholic, you don't agree with me, uh, but aren't you glad you don't have to go through a mediator anymore? Uh, this morning. Early this morning, the alarm clock went off this morning about 5.30. Typically, some of you may do this, I'm a a half hour before guy. In other words, my alarm clock goes off at 5.30 and then it goes off again at 6. I don't know why I like turning the alarm clock off and going back to sleep. But I like to do that. Anybody else besides me do the half hour? Oh, good, I feel better. I'm not such a crazy man. But I'll turn it off. 15 minutes, by the way, is not enough. Half hour, you can get back to sleep. And I, and my wife is always jealous of me because I can fall asleep. How long would it take me normally to fall asleep back? <laughs> she went, it's pretty close. Uh, I'd say seconds, not minutes. Uh, I just, if I lay down, game over. I'm asleep. And so I like to wake up and go back to sleep. This morning, my alarm clock going off at 530. I lay back down, you know, reached over, turned it off, lay down. And instead of going to sleep, it's been four or five weeks since I spoke And the message is running through my head. I sat there and prayed about the message laying in my bed on my back, praying to God. I have that kind of access. Isn't that amazing that I can just talk to God anytime I feel like it? And by the way, I think you should. If the Holy Spirit says you should pray about something and he tells me that all the time. Sometimes it's I should pray about somebody else. Sometimes it's should pray about a need of mine. But most time it's for me praying about something I've done wrong and the Holy Spirit's reminding me. You need to get that right before you go to Sunday school. You need to make sure you're right with God. You want the Holy Spirit working through you, not my tongue working through me. Amen? You, you, hopefully you didn't come to hear me. You came to hear the truth of the Word of God. So Jesus is our mediator. Okay, so then you go into the Holy of Holies, right? And there it is listed there, the Holy of Holies. So you can kind of see everything stacked out. It's not as pretty, but it gives you a good good idea of what things look like. So in the Holy of Holies, you have, uh, first of all, you had the veil. And we know the veil from the New Testament. Why? Crucifixion, what happens? The veil of the temple is written twain. It rips from, not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom. We didn't do it. He did it. Yeah? Isn't that good? Aren't you? I didn't, I didn't have... Oh, anyway, I, I'll get to preaching. Okay, so the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies represents the flesh of Jesus' body. By the way, we'll study that in a lot of more detail because that's in, he- uh, that's in Hebrews chapter 9. It talks about the veil of His flesh being torn so it gives us access to God. As that veil... The literal veil in the tavern and the temple at, this, at his crucifixion. As that literal veil was being torn, he was being torn. I mean, wow. Can, every time I read stuff like this, I read Old Testament and New Testament. And you start putting them together and you see how perfectly they blend. You've got to say to yourself, this man did not write this book. <laughs> There's no way. Amen. That should strengthen your faith in a way that you can't even even explain. Anyway, so it represents Jesus' flesh. Jesus' flesh was torn and cut just like the veil was torn from top to bottom. It is because of his death that we can become boldly. Old Testament, only the priest, only the high priest, and only once a year could he enter into there. We can go, like I said, 5.30 in the morning. In a sense, in a literal sense, I can... I shouldn't say in a literal. In a figurative sense, I can literally walk into the Holy of Holies now. Right to the presence of God. Isn't that amazing? If you're an Old Testament Jew and he's explaining this to you, do you not see Jesus as better? I mean, in every, all he's saying is in every facet, in every area, where you're talking about the priests, or you're talking about angels or you're talking about Abraham or you're talking about Moses or you're talking about Melchizedek, Better, better understand what God has done for you. And I would say the same thing to you. Understand what God has done for you. Understand his grace. Understand his mercy. Understand uh, how he has opened up the veil for you. It's it's an unbelievable story, okay? Uh, So uh, after the veil, you have the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. Now, again, when you get to the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, there are some things in that I cannot exactly explain. I can give you general concepts, but what happens in there is really, I guess I could use the word mysterious. I, I don't know if that's, that sounds not really the right word, I guess, but it is. How that really functions, we're not, it's told what to do, but we're not told how that covers sin or how... it it gets to a point we'll study that again that's also in Hebrews we'll talk about the mercy seat a little bit more but understand inside that holy place there's the mercy seat it's covered by uh, the cherubim uh, the angels and by the way it's not whatever you learned in Raiders of the Lost Ark just forget okay stop that don't be crazy Uh, All right. you say is there literally a physical Ark of the Covenant somewhere gotta be somewhere do we know where it is I don't think so you say, well, why can't we find it? Uh, God doesn't want you to find it. That's, that's, my, that's my explanation of that. Okay, so the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the Ark of the Mercy were the place where God met with men. Uh, it represents our meeting place with God where Christ obtained our eternal redemption for us. Old Testament, it wasn't eternal. It was a temporal covering. New Testament, it is an eternal redemption. I am saved, done, over. Can't change it, Amen. Think about that for anybody in here who's ever done any study on eternal security and understands what God has done for us. Wow. Everybody this morning, if you think about these things, everybody this morning, there should be a sense of overwhelming praise to God for what, for what he's saying here. Christ is better. So in, in the ark, three different things. There's the golden pot of manna. Uh, some people say that it represents God's provision. I could see that, obviously, and I think I can prove that in the New Testament. Aaron's rod that budded, budded God's chosen high priest. God is the one who chose who is the high priest. Who is our high priest now? Jesus, yeah, okay. Uh, and the tables of the covenant, God's requirement. I think there is a sense, now listen, there isn't a sense, there, God has, there's a sense that God has a requirement for you to go to heaven. It is a perfect, righteous, unspotted life. You don't have that. You say, you don't know me. I don't have to know you. I know everybody's a sinner and I know I can prove that from the New Testament. Whether you agree with me or not, it, it doesn't matter where I point my finger. You've sinned. You've sinned. You've sinned. There, there, it, okay, there are no perfect people. We know that. The older you get, by the way, the easier that is to believe, right? Wow. Uh, yeah, uh, we, we had the well, I don't remember what channel our TV was on, but we turned the TV on the other night and it was a movie about uh, the Bakers. Uh, Jim and Tammy, what's her, for, Tammy Faye? Is that the right name? Yeah. Uh, I was, and when we watched the, I, we didn't watch it all, but we watched the last part of it when they were falling apart and all that. And when we got through, Becky and I were talking and Becky's like, well, that just makes me distrust everybody. And there's a sense in which she should. You know why? I can say this. We're all liars. Now, I don't mean you're characterized by lying continually, but you all do lie. We're all full of pride. Right? And by the way, if I said that and you went, I'm not, oh boy. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) Right? Yeah. The moment you say, I don't have a pride problem, I don't know what to tell you at that point. It's like, well, I think you just proved you do, but whatever. Okay, Understand, the requirements for salvation have all been met by Jesus Christ. Now, let me change gears a second. But the requirements for pleasing God have not. Amen? If I want to have a right relationship with God... There are certain requirements that I must follow. We're getting away from that in modern day Christianity and I'm getting tired of it. Well, I can live, I have liberty, I can live like I want. No, liberty means you can live like God wants you to. You, there are things that you should do. You are required, biblically, if you're going to please God, to follow the truths of this book as close as you can. Not for salvation, but so that your relationship is right before God and your testimony is right before a lost and dying world. We're losing our influence because we're going away from that and we don't want to say things like requirements or scriptural responsibilities. We don't want to say that anymore. You know, that's not the woke crowd. I don't care. I will tell you what I told my kids when I was a youth pastor back in 1977, a graduate of Bible college you should read your Bible every day. That's plea well pleasing to God. How can you know what God wants you to do if you don't know what God wants you to do? You're not going to do it if you don't know it. Stop it. It's okay to say there are requirements for pleasing God. Only one requirement for salvation, but many requirements for pleasing God. Kindness is a requirement. Honesty is a requirement. Right? Joy, love, peace. Those are all requ- Loving your neighbor more than yourself. Is that not a requirement for pleasing God? Yes or no? It's okay to say that. Don't, don't. I have so many people back. I'll say, well, if you're going to please God, you need to love your neighbor yourself. Well, I don't have to do that because Christ died for me. What? I didn't talk. I'm not talking about your salvation, I'm talking about your Christian walk. So there's still requirements, okay? I think that's as far as I went in there. Oh, uh, the cherubim overshadowing the mercy seat symbolize the presence of God. Yeah, that's it. Oh, well, if you want to go out. I'm going to run out of time here. Uh, the bronze labor out in the courtyard, the bronze labor was filled with water. Uh, anybody can probably much guess where that's going to go. The labor symbolizes our cleansing from sin. By the way, who cleanses from sin? Who cleanses from sin? Everything, my, you, your answer, if I ask you anything about the tabernacle and its symbolism, you're always right when you say Jesus, Right? There's nothing you can say, nothing I can say about the tabernacle that the right answer, okay. And the altar of uh, the, uh, uh, the brazen altar where things were sacrificed, uh, what does that represent? Jesus. <laughs> the answer is always Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament tabernacle is directly related to our Savior. And it's really easy, uh, the, the, the easy answer, now in, in Bible college, you'd have to, you to—you couldn't just answer Jesus. You had to answer Jesus and how that was related and what scriptures it went to and where could you see that in the New Testament. And I will say this. Let me get to another little section here. All right, pick up your notes real quick and go back to page 81. I've got a few minutes. Uh, so well, I think we got all those things. Okay, yeah. So uh, go to page 81 again, right past that middle section. It was important. You see where I'm at? It was important that Hebrew Christians understand all these things. The furnishing of the tabernacle, the materials used in making the tabernacle, the worship and services in the tabernacles, all pointed to Christ. They got it. They, they knew what it all meant. They just didn't understand it was Christ. You're kind of on the other side. You understand it's Christ, but you don't know how to relate it to the Old Testament. Have you ever thought about that? They were on, when he was writing to the Hebrews, they were here trying to figure this out. You're here trying to figure that out. It's really... It's really pretty much the same. Our struggle sometimes is like their struggle, just from the other side of the veil, so to speak. Uh, anyway, the tabernacle is the shadow. Christ is the substance, right? You understand that. It's, it was now time to let go of the shadow, take hold of the substance. For now, let's, uh, we'll look at the description of the tabernacle. Now, jump past that. I'm going to go to one more paragraph, and then I'll let you go, okay? Uh, la, 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 la. Go to middle paragraph, page 82. It is remarkable. You see, you see everybody follow along with me. Hang on to this because we'll get to the rest of it next Sunday. It is remarkable that the writer of Hebrews maintains that the whole institution was a figure, was an example, was a symbol. You could use any word there of what was to come. And And though he specifies by name all the furniture in the tabernacle, he does not attempt to explain their particular typical character. Did you notice that in those first five verses, right? I explained some of it, but did you notice that he didn't try to explain every little detail? I love what this guy said, Dr. Barnes said this. It would have been better if all expositors had followed the example of Paul and had been content as he was to state the facts about the tabernacle and the general truth that the, disposition was, that the dispensation was intended to introduce a more perfect economy without endeavoring to explain the typical import of every pin, pillar, and pillar of the ancient place of worship. I agree with him wholeheartedly. When you get to the point where you're trying to explain and the curtain had fringes and the fringes had twists in the fringes and the the spirals and the twists in the fringes meant, stop, what are you doing? You say, but don't you think it's possible it could have had symbolism? Oh, absolutely, because God does nothing by mistake. I'm saying this, you can't prove your information. You're going to read a lot of things if you do any study of the tabernacle, about this meant that and this meant that understand it only means what the Bible says it means don't go too far and I love the way he said that why should why should we be more wise than he more wise than the author of Hebrews the moment we leave that and attempt to spiritualize everything in the ancient economy we're in an open sea without a compass or a chart and no one knows what that what, to what fairy lands to what fairy lands that may be drifted that we may be drifted boy you talk about rough that's an old time preacher isn't he He's like, stop At you're, you're guessing, you're playing. And sometimes, sometimes we tempt, and pastors are tempted, and I'm thinking of myself, we're tempted to go a little farther and push it a little farther than it has to be because we think that makes us look intelligent. Can I tell you something? I don't want to be more intelligent than the scripture tells me because then I'm just guessing, right? And then I find myself, I can get myself in trouble really fast because I found this to be, when I push it past the mark, Year, like if, if I was in my 20s and I push it past the mark usually about the time I'm in my 50s I realize that that illustration doesn't hold water and it really doesn't work We're in contact with this passage and now I have to go back and change what I Be careful. Only make it mean what it obviously means from what you see in the scripture. Everybody understand that? Okay we'll talk about the service and what happened in, actually in the holy place and the holy of holies next week. Lord we thank you for these illustrations and for what they all symbolize the example the truth the character of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to understand what you've done for us and how blessed we are to be in the new covenant. We're thankful for our Savior. We pray, Lord, that this year we'll proclaim him more than we ever have in our whole lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. You are dismissed.